Welcome to the BitBlock Boom Podcast. I'm your host, Gary Leland, and the producer of the BitBlock Boom Bitcoin Conference. Just for reference, I also host the Crypto Cousins Podcast, the Railroad Podcast, the 4-Minute Crypto Show, and the What is Bitcoin Podcast. So I have quite a few podcasts now. You should be able to find all those podcasts wherever you're listening to this podcast at, iTunes, Google, or wherever. Now, in August, I will host another BitBlockBoom conference in Dallas, Texas, with the help of all my friends. If you're interested in Bitcoin, you really need to visit BitBlockBoom.com and take a look at the great speaker lineup I'm putting together and all the events that are going to go on around BitBlockBoom. BitBlockBoom is a Bitcoin conference, and I really do mean a true Bitcoin conference. It's not an altcoin conference or a crypto conference. It is a Bitcoin conference. And if you use the code word COUSINS, as C-O-U-S-I-N-S, when checking out or purchasing your conference tickets, you'll receive 30% off the price of your tickets at this year's event. Now, in today's episode, I'm bringing you another session from the first BitBlockBoom conference that was held in 2018. This episode features a session by Mark Hopkins, and he's a local Dallasite. In case you're not familiar with Mark, he has been involved with Bitcoin, seems like, forever. He was actually the first person ever to tell me about Bitcoin many years ago, I think it was about $100 when he told me about it. I, I kind of wish I'd listened to him then instead of listening to him later. Now, today's session from Mark is titled The History of Bitcoin. And really, this is really a great session. I really enjoyed this, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy it too. So, uh, yeah, um, today's topic is a little, so what this is, is a version of a talk that I give uh, on the road and at universities. I do this about once a semester at SMU. It's the history of Bitcoin. Um, but because this is a slightly more advanced crowd, usually I'm t- talking to MBA or IT students that maybe are really unfamiliar with Bitcoin. So it's, it's very rudimentary. There's going to be a little bit of that that level sets this. But then we're going to go into... Uh, some of the more interesting stuff. But like he said about me, uh, I've, I run some agencies around here. Uh, I have a uh, work with the IBM Futures Program, and uh, you can just find me all over the internet using that. Here's about my philosophy. This is kind of level set, uh, this part of it. I'm not a Bitcoin maximalist, per se. I guess I, I made up this word for this presentation on mostmalist, because I do a lot of uh, blockchain consulting, and I have to interact in the world of ICOs. and. It's this, this stuff is moving really fast. There's a lot of stuff that I want to do that Bitcoin can't do. And so, uh, I, but I, I'm very selective as well. I'm, if, if Bitcoin can do it, I don't want to be in your project. Uh, but there's a lot of stuff, and we're going to talk about that today. Bitcoin can't do it. It has to be Bitcoin Plus, and there's no shame in that. I'm a radical crypto anarchist. Uh, as, as Tony mentioned uh, on the uh, promo podcast on Crypto President, some work with John McAfee on his, his presidential campaign. Uh, back when that was going on, I've been in the Libertarian Party for a while. That's my that's my background uh, and in, as far as that political politi- goes. And I, I mentioned that just because, uh, again, this is going to be a theme of what I'm talking about. You can't extricate politics from blockchain. Uh, I'm an idea and futurist. I mentioned that a couple of times. But uh, the reason why I bring it up again is because I'm constantly explo- exposed to the blockchain, not Bitcoin propaganda. It's, it's false. You can't have one without the other. Um, but here we go. Slide. Okay, so what is Bitcoin? I, I start every speech out with this. This is my level set. Bitcoin is the reference architecture for blockchain, which is an internet protocol for removing the requirement for trust between counterparties. You, 
you can't have blockchain without Bitcoin. I think we all uh, understand what it is, but it's uh, you know it's the world's first fully decentralized currency. It uses a thing, a concept called tokens. It's not new to uh, the idea of money and tokens, but it is the first time it was codified in such a way, unlike previous digital currency attempts in the past, where PayPal and Apple, Venmo, things that have been centralized. What makes it different from other blockchains? It is the most secure and tested consensus mechanism of all blockchain. I, if you go to blockchain conferences all the time, IBM has their own consensus mechanisms that don't involve tokens. Uh, I'm always suspicious of new consensus mechanisms because without a financial incentive for honesty, you may not have it. You know, you're just, you're just relying on trust and that's not what this whole thing is for. This whole thing is to remove the requirement for trust. If there's no owner, how is integrity maintained? With Bitcoin, it's with miners. Uh, everybody in this room most likely understands what mining is about and how consensus mechanisms work. If you don't, uh, take a picture of this slide and talk to me later. Uh, why does blockchain, not Bitcoin, matter? So this is, this is a unique slide for this room um, because a lot of you guys are Bitcoin maximalists, but you, got, you can't ignore this contingent. Um, Oracle and IBM specifically are combined investing more money into blockchain than any of our friends could ever hope to in their life. I mean, so I, I, I realized this was a big deal. I've been in the IBM Futures program since before IBM was really big into blockchain. Uh, I showed up, uh, I think it was in 2016 or 2017. Uh, it, was, it was 2017 to one of the big conferences and Gina Ramitti gets up on stage and have like six hours of keynotes over the course of a week. She spent half of her time talking about AI, which is very understandable uh, because they've been spending the last 13 years investing in Watson. And then the other half of her time was spent talking about blockchain. They are betting the farm on blockchain. They're a multi-billion dollar company. Everyone's heard the saying, no one ever got fired for hiring IBM. Unfortunately, and Hopefully none of my IBM handlers are in the room hearing me say this, but I don't really like their implementation of, of blockchain. It kind of, uh, it, it forked Ethereum, which itself uh, kind of forks a lot of the core principles of Bitcoin. And so there are a couple of standard deviations away from a lot of the founding principles of blockchain and therefore have lost a lot of the value proposition that blockchain can bring to them. But they are the elephant. So anytime you're going into a business context, you're coming from it with a core principles of Bitcoin in your head, this is what you're fighting against. And it's understandable how they got there, and we're gonna find out why as I go through the history here. But to start, again, level set, this thing starts in 1978. Um, that's when you started talking about the Byzantine general pro pro problem. And in case you haven't heard that, this is a Great analogy to get in your head, especially when you're trying to explain Bitcoin to your friends and family. Um, I hear, hear all kinds of crazy explanations of Bitcoin, well, it's like this or it's like that, and it never, never quite resonates. And there's a reason why the Byzantine general problem is easier to use, is because it was what Satoshi used in his white paper, and it's what started this whole revolution. If you're not familiar with it, the idea is that uh, you've got the Byzantine army, uh, their general, their, their, their military structure is not like the military structure wherever it's hierarchical. Uh, it's a bunch of peer generals, and they have to communicate with each other. And they've got this big battle that's coming up that's pivotal to the war. And if they all advance in unison, or if they all retreat in unison, the, the war is still winnable. But if they 
don't do everything in unison, the whole war is lost and the empire falls. And to make matters even worse, the communications mechanisms between those generals are unreliable. Sometimes the couriers are loyal to different, uh, different factions. Sometimes the generals themselves are loyal to different factions or loyal to themselves or are traitors to the empire. So how do you get all these self-interested generals to all act in unison in the best interest of the empire? And this is a computer science problem that's been worked on since the late 70s and early 80s. And this is what Satoshi's white paper meant to solve. And that's, that's the nine pages of information you're reading about when you read Satoshi's white paper is the solution to the computer science problem. It's also not just for currency. Uh, it's also been a problem that's been solved, uh, attempted to have been solved in like aeronautics and rocket space, uh, rock, uh, space rocketry and that sort of thing. It's, a, it's an interesting thing. So if you're geek out on that type of thing, do that. So 1985 is the next date of note. It's the, uh, the, the, the roots of the term cypherpunk uh, get traced back to cryptographer David Chown. Uh, he wrote online commonly about topics of anonymous digital cash and pseudonymous reputation systems. Um, then uh, around the time the, uh, the, the, the creation, there was, well, this is, yeah. So right around the creation of the, uh, the cypherpunk mailing list, Timothy May, uh, who's a technical and political writer, published something called the Crypto Anarchist Manifesto. Um, this is 1992, but I mean, I, I put a few quotes from this thing and you should just read the whole thing when you've got time. It'll take you a minute and a half, two minutes or something. But some of the, some of the phrases in there were like, interactions over networks will be untraceable via extensive rerouting of encrypted packets and tamper-proof boxes. That sounds pretty prescient. Uh, the technology for this revolution will surely be both a social and economic revolution. They have existed in theory for the past decade. And the, United, and the state will try to slow or halt the spread of this technology, citing national security concerns, use of the technology by drug dealers, tax evaders, and fear of societal disintegration. Doesn't that sound familiar? We're living in the future he predicted in 1992. So he and a few other folks put together a, a mailing list. I'm actually proud to say I was on this mailing list, even though I was in high school at the time. Uh, and uh, it was... It was uh, this also was uh, kind of reminiscent of the world we live in. If you go to Bitcoin talk forums or Reddit, there's an equal division of personal arguments and attacks, political discussion, technical discussion, and spam. It hasn't changed since 1992. But these thought leaders and activists and writers uh, published uh, a lot of important works through this list. Uh, this is Eric Hughes. He was one of the founders of the mailing list. He published something in 93 called the Cypherpunk Manifesto. This is another great, it was uh, perhaps a little bit more eloquent, um, also equally prescient. Privacy is necessary for an open society in the electronic age. Privacy is the power to selectively reveal oneself to the world. We're just talking about that, perhaps having anonymous loan systems based on cryptocurrency. Information longs to be free. It's one of those classic quotes that gets bandied around Cyberpunk, cypherpunks write code. I mean, it was just kind of like a foundational document and it kind of established the ethos. Again, read this one too. This is uh, easy to find on the internet. And it's uh, take you about two, three minutes to read, but it, you'll, you'll be shocked at how much uh, was kind of foretold in these documents. So the next big milestone hash cache was created by Dr. Adam Back in 1997. 
It was primarily designed as an anti-spam mechanism, which would add a little bit of time and computational power to the, uh, the uh, movement of sending email, trying to make it uh, a little bit more uh, uh, difficult to spam the network. Um, if you have uh, played around with uh, Rye blocks, or I guess they're called Nano now, uh, they uh, have that, it's a no-feed blockchain uh, experiment. Uh, they use uh, this technique to uh, prevent uh, spamming of the network, you know, and, and creating full blocks for zero cost. Um, Daga is a way die, published the proposal for B-Money in 1998. This is a long time ago, but it, it included a lot of uh, foundational concepts. Uh, again, I mentioned Ryblox and Nano in here. Uh, a lot of what was done originally in B-Money has been incorporated in, into that specifically. Um, I, I would I'd say, uh, not just nano, but also if you've heard of the patch graph, uh, they use this kind of block lattice structure idea. Um, in, in B money, it was uh, every participant in the network would maintain a separate database of how much money belongs to the users, and then all records are kept by a specific group of users. I think we would call those nodes now. Hal Finney, that's a name a lot of people recognize because he was suspected of perhaps being Satoshi Nakamoto, or at least one of the people in the collective that could be Satoshi Nakamoto. Uh, he's a frozen head now until we can figure out a way to cure ALS. But uh, he created in 2004 reusable proofs of work, uh, which borrowed heavily from the concepts of uh, hash cash. 2004, Nick Zabo, who's still very active in the community, published a white paper for BitGold. Nick Zabo is also one of the guys that's considered to be a candidate for Satoshi Nakamoto, though he vehemently denies it. Uh, he. Uh, built heavily on the shoulders of Hal Finney and uh, also was very uh, involved in the early Bitcoin network. Then in 2008, now we've actually got to the point where Bitcoin is a word. 2008, Satoshi Nakamoto publishes the white paper. Again, nine pages. If you haven't read it and you're in this room, just read it. It's not, it's, it's not even, uh, it's not like the white papers that get published now. I mean, I, I kind of chuckle because I, I haven't published a white paper in less than 40 pages myself. I've done like 15 or 20 of these things at this point. You can't get them done that is eloquently and concisely. But he spent, look how many years was spent, you know, look back here. I mean, they started working on this stuff like in 93. Started thinking about it seriously in 97. 2008, almost a decade later. I mean, it's a lot of thought. Think about how quickly these white papers get turned out now. They're like five minutes, they got a white paper and a, and a nice, you know, so, Anyway, the first 50 Bitcoins are mined in 2009. Uh, they were done on a general purpose computer using the CPU. Those were the days. Wish I got in at that time. The first US Bitcoin exchange. Now this is kind of fun. Uh, $1 could have bought, or would have bought you 1,309.03 Bitcoins. Or for, put it another way, you could, to buy one Bitcoin, you need uh, 76 tenths of a cent. Sorry, hundredths of a cent. That would be neat. Bitcoin Pizza Day is the first real-world transaction of pizza. Or sorry, not real-world transaction. Real-world transaction of uh, Bitcoin for pizza. Um, it's uh, it was a couple of Papa John's pizza. It got a twenty-five dollars worth of Bitcoin, or ten thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin, or ten thousand Bitcoins. Uh, you can go to I think it's at. Uh, Bitcoin Pizza on Twitter, and it publishes a daily number of. Uh, uh, dollars that that pizza cost. I pulled this up last night and said it was $62 million based on uh, the spot price yesterday. 
So, um, 2011, this is getting close to where I got into things. It was the dawn of GPU mining, but this is where things start to get interesting. I won't focus on the mining. I'm going to focus on Silk Road. Okay, why are we talking about Silk Road? I thought we are past the, the hookers and blow era of Bitcoin. Why are we talking about this? Well, we're, we're talking about it because uh, I'm a crypto anarchist, and it's important to understand this is the real reason why the stuff was created. I mean, go back to that Crypto Anarchist Manifesto. This is the, this is the inspiration right here, right? To transact with total freedom, uh, with no uh, interference from the state. And finally, in 2011, we're here, right? It's uh, best known as the platform for selling illegal drugs. But um, as uh, Kathy Reisenwitz, a, a cryptocurrency uh, lecturer and uh, libertarian activist, quite later put it, one Bitcoin user created an exchange which completely solved the problem of violence in the drug trade. He created the eBay for narcotics. In so doing, he replaced broken kneecaps with bad user reviews. <laughs> powerful though, right? I mean, uh, and so um, this is when I got in, it was about April 2011. As I recall, the price was around about seven, nine dollars. Uh, so the, this, ironically, it was a friend of mine who was a VP at Bank of America that introduced me to it. We would go and geek out on tech stuff at a coffee shop late at night. And he would, I would pay for the, the meal and he would pay me back in Bitcoin. So those cups of coffee are roughly worth about six, seven thousand dollars at today's spot price. But uh, I couldn't imagine the price getting much higher than twelve bucks a bitcoin, which I was quickly proven wrong. Um, because again, what sh what shot the price up for bitcoin in June 9th? But an uh, article by Gawker uh, about Silk Road, and everyone said, "Hey, we've got something here." So the end of solo mining court, uh, kind of uh, don't, uh, sunsetted around the same time. Uh, Bitcoin hit a dollar. Um, a year later, I was on a uh, broadcast video uh, talking about how I thought Bitcoin might be overvalued at $100. <laughs> I was wrong. It boomed, uh, doubling to more than $200 uh, the week after I said that. Um, <laughs> I stopped making price predictions about that time. Um, but why did it boom? It was due to the, the, the Cyprus banking crisis. Uh, if you guys remember that, this is back when uh, Europe was uh, ate up with the, uh, the austerity measures and whatnot for the uh, Portugal, Italy, Greece, and Spain that were all basically bankrupt states. Uh, Cyprus at the time said, you know what we're going to do, uh, anybody that's got a, a checking account or bank account, we're just going to, we're going to take money out of that and pay our debt with it. And Cyprus <laughs> said, where's the Bitcoin ATM? And uh, that, I mean, that's literally what happened. It was, it was amazing, but it, it, it proved out what Bitcoin was good for. Um, GPU mining uh, started ending here because of the popularity of, of Bitcoin and uh, the increased usage and you know, the, the gold rush, more people in the network, higher difficulty. GPU stopped being very profitable. Butterfly Labs started shipping a couple miners. If you're around then, you realize, or you remember, they didn't have a really good track record. It was also the beginning of dominance of the Chinese interests in the infrastructure of Bitcoin. Um, and then uh, Bitcoin hit $1,000 in November 29, 2013. Uh, if, if you were around during this period of time, it was uh, a little bit painful. Um, this is... Uh, it was, uh, Bitcoin hit uh, 1,200 bucks at its peak. Um, 
at 12, 1216. It was probably due to a little bit of market manipulation on the Gox uh, exchange, as well as uh, the increase in Chinese interest in buyouts and whatnot, and uh, the mining interest and whatnot. Uh, at the time, MT Gox uh, accounted for 70% of all Bitcoin transactions in one centralized website. That's a problem. We're talking about that. Actually, you know what? Let's talk about it now. It's been said in every presentation. If you don't own your keys, you don't own your Bitcoin. That's exactly what happened here. Um, then, uh, a little bit later, the DEA bust their first uh, Silk Road user. Seized 11 Bitcoins, then worth about a total of $814. Media suspected it was part of a honeypot. Very shortly thereafter, October 2nd, uh, the FBI arrested Ross Ulbricht a uh, UT Dallas alum. Uh, he was alleged by the FBI to be the founder of Silk Road. He later copped to it. He copped to being the, uh, the, the founder, but he never really quite admitted that he was the operator for all the time. He said he handed off the uh, site to the founder of uh, MT Gox. I'm not sure how much I believe that, but he uh, was arrested in San Francisco. The FBI seized initially 26,000 Bitcoins and later auctioned them off. Uh, Ross was handed two lifetime sentences, as well as three lesser ones, to be served concurrently with zero chance of parole for operating a website that allowed people to buy drugs. They made a bunch of allegations. I know this is, uh, gets really deep into it. They made a bunch of allegations that he was hiring hitmen and stuff like that, but none of that was even proven, nor, nor was he ever charged with any of that stuff either. It was, just seems like it was uh, there to sully his reputation, erode any support that he had uh, from the public but um, continues to be somewhat of a hero in the crypto-anarchist movement because uh, he created uh, you know, the whole uh, you know, the, 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 the velocity for, that the darknets have that allow kind of the free trade of, of basically everything else. Um, but that period of time kind of marked the end of uh, the meteoric growth of, uh, of Bitcoin and uh, blockchain. It didn't mean uh, that nothing happened, it just mean nothing happened with the price and it allowed us geeks to go back about our business and play with stuff in, in peace without being associated with the hookers and blow again for a little bit. This is about when IBM started getting involved too. It was about the middle of this 2013 to 2017 period. They started really getting involved. This is when Ethereum popped out. This is when a lot of the first of the, I mean, not too many of them on the top 10 list are left on the top 10 from this period, but a few of them are. Uh, but then this is when probably most people started hearing about Bitcoin and thinking about it seriously. It was when Bitcoin finally hit $1,000 again. Uh, Bitcoin hobbled close to $1,000 and began its trek in uh, to December towards 20 grand or just short of 20 grand. But this began the phase of cryptocurrency where the world began seeing Bitcoin as a solid investment individuals startups outside the world of tech are taking it seriously. They never really did before. So, but, and you know, then we get into the, the hard forks and the scaling issues, which have been covered from a bunch of different uh, angles today. Um, and then uh, this is kind of the, the last uh, most important milestone in modern uh, times that I throw on the list is the end of Bitcoin dominance. And this is important to understand uh, and to recognize because that Bitcoin exists along an ecosystem of hundreds, if not thousands, of other serious uh, blockchain projects where you can perfectly instrument the amount of capital that are involved in these projects. Um, 
the but Bitcoin, this coin is far less than uh, 50% of the blockchain markets, um, but it is still by far and away the largest chunk of that. Um, and I think this is good news. Um, Bitcoin, uh, blockchain is an instrument for, uh, or is a, is a protocol for instrumenting value. Uh, a lot of people think about all these blockchain projects and ICOs as trying to create money out of thin air. I don't think of it that way. Um, and I'll give you an example of why I don't think of it that way. There was a client I was talking to, uh, everybody heard like the, uh, the Olive Garden Infinite Pasta Pass that they have. It's this thing they sell at the beginning of the year for like 700 bucks and you can just gorge yourself as much as you want on spaghetti for the rest of the year. It's an interesting promotion. It helps Olive Garden raise capital. And there's a lot of uh, restaurant marketing firms that do this sort of thing for kind of down market chains and that sort of stuff. And so they have raised capital so that like uh, you know, a five chain restaurant can, uh, I don't know, put a deck on you know the front of their restaurant and make it look nicer for the year or whatever. They're basically trading against their own pasta futures, something like that. But um, anyway, I was talking to this company that does like 4,500 of these things a year for different restaurants around the world. And they were interested in blockchain. Essentially, you're talking about doing an ICO. Um, if, you, if you take that, that process and uh, blockchain it up, does that mean we're creating new capital out of thin air? No, this is, this is exactly the same amount of sales that would have done before. What if you're, what if you're Starbucks? and you're instrumenting your Starbucks points on a blockchain. You're not creating capital out of thin air, and it doesn't make sense to do that with a Bitcoin network, but it does make sense to perfectly instrument your capital in a new way. And you're gonna to continue to see, as people understand how these protocols work, you can continue to see this type of thing happen, where Bitcoin's dominance will shrink and shrink and shrink as compared to all this other instrument capital, but that doesn't necessarily mean the amount of capital inside of Bitcoin is going to shrink. In fact, it will probably remain one of the primary conduits for capital to get into these new types of new types of deals. It's currently the case right now. So here's the key learnings and a puppy tax. That's my dog. Her name is Token. <laughs> There's no such thing as blockchain, not Bitcoin. You can't. You even even as as I mean, as, as much as IBM and Oracle want this to be the case, you cannot. Talk about instrumenting capital for your possible without acknowledging the fact that this is created as a fundamental tool for freedom, right? Your your, your possible past will be in, you know publicly tradable on you know Binance and the decentralized exchanges and uh, you know as, as as much as it will be inside of your official app. That's how this works. That's why this works. It's an inherently political concept. It's inspired and created by people who generally lean towards philosophies that favor individual liberty and voluntarism. If you're not down with that, this is not your world. Blockchain and Bitcoin. Um, Bitcoin paved the way, but just as Nick Szabo, Al Finney, Wade Dye, Adam Back, Eric Hughes, John Gilmore, and Timothy May built on each other's shoulders, so too do the other projects outside of Bitcoin that advance the ideals of crypto-anarchism. And make no mistake, every time you see a blockchain project, it's crypto-anarchism. We're building the tools that will allow us to no longer have to rely on government. That's what this is. And finally, you got to dig into the culture of this stuff. This will help you um, create tools that may not be Bitcoin but are congruent with Bitcoin. Right? That's in my that's my true definition of that most word that I made up at the beginning of this thing. Is I. Uh, 
you, 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 a lot of the Bitcoin maximalists will look at the, the pantheon, the diaspora of, of blockchain projects and note that most of them are scams and they're absolutely correct. And it feels overwhelming because you don't under, you, it's hard to discern, you know, how, how do you look at a project and go, this is not a scam. So you just label them all scams and leave them alone. I think a more intelligent approach is going, what are the projects that are uh, keeping with the ethos of cypherpunk and crypto anarchism that are complementary to Bitcoin? Things like Open Bazaar. Look, that's that's based on a, a, a an idea that uh, we should have a completely decentralized means of exchanging goods and services, just like uh, what Silk Road tried to be. But Silk Road was a centralized system. MT Gox was a centralized system. These were ideas that were not yet fully baked and you couldn't implement them on top of the bitcoin blockchain fully but you know i mean look at lightning network that's not that's not bitcoin that's bitcoin plus but it certainly is congruent with the ideas of cypherpunk and crypto anarchism it's it's a uh, it is in my opinion in the spirit of what is all this created so anyway that's that um i'm do i have, to, do I have time for questions no? Okay. I told you that was going to happen. Find me later. Thanks. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as normal. And if you want to find out more about Mark, I've recorded two other interviews with him on the Crypto Cousins podcast. So just go to CryptoCousins.com to find those. You may want to listen to those, and you may want to follow him on Twitter, where he's at Rizzen, R-I-Z-Z-N. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider subscribing and sharing the BitBlock Boom podcast with your friends. It'd be great if you could give the show a five-star review on iTunes or whatever app you're using to listen. Um, We're getting pretty close to the end of 2018's uh, sessions, but on the next episode, we'll feature Mark Clear. And he's going to talk about mining, and that's another great session. So thanks for listening to this episode of the BitBlock Boom podcast. And like I said, make sure and take a look at next year's lineup at BitBlockBoom.com. And I hope I get to see you in Dallas, Texas. Mm